they got to keep in mind, these are the people that the people that tend to get this disease are the go-getters. They're the senior corporate executives that are really high functioning that a lot of times they're in great shape and they'll say they, they, they jog uh, 10 miles a day. I mean, it's just incredible what they used to do prior to getting this. They would have a flu-like illness and then that, then suddenly everything fell apart. They never recovered from it. And it was like a perfect storm of events that occurred. A lot, uh, you know, some of them report they had a lot of stress going on in their life at the time. Then they also had the virus come in and the two things along with other problems that were occurring at the same time just the, the body wasn't able to recover after that. I, I'm going to wait until you've done this, but until I've seen what you're saying, but you're reminding me immediately of long COVID and the questions that we should be asking around long COVID. You know, who collapses to this virus? What are the conditions under which that happens? And where's the immune system? And is this really a disease? All of those are, to me, really questions of that are that you're already raising and i'm, fa I'm fascinated so keep going <laughs> that, that's a very good point and the, there is a lot of shared overlap and similarity between these two diseases and long covid patients do report a lot of the things that we're talking about um, the hope is that um, if we solve the, a lot of people are working on what, what's going on with it because they don't understand why this is occurring in, in patients that some people are not able to get past this disease and not able to recover even if, even though now it's been going on two years for some folks uh so it's starting to look like that, that they are developing a chronic condition from that initial infection and, they, and the, the good thing about that is we know where it started like yeah. we know in in, in MECFS, it could be any infectious pathogen virus. Usually, they expected uh, a lot of them suspect uh, Epstein Barr, uh, herpes simplex virus. You know, one of those etiologies that that triggers it. Uh, but but it's variable, right? And at least with COVID, now we have this. We know a lot about the virus, so we know at least that is is an unknown that we don't have to deal with. Um, and so <laughs> the hope is that by solving long COVID, that that will also help us to also apply or provide a template for what to do with MECFS, at least for some patients, but we'll be able to, we'll be able to figure out what to do with them. Mm -hmm. It is this, the, probably one of the few silver linings in this pandemic. Unfortunately, it took a pandemic for this to become a prominent, you know, front center issue right and unfortunately it's going to continue to grow it's going to continue to get even yeah. worse as the virus mutates and as as there's more exposure and more people getting it and now even people with mild symptoms are they're, they're not hospitalized but yet they're, they're they're experiencing long covid symptoms that are so similar to what the type of things you get with MECFS. so i'm interested now in conducting studies that compare these two groups and that's what we have put in a, a, in a grant application to NIH to, to, to look at that working with some collaborators at uh, Northwestern University who, who do do all the other modalities except for EEG I do the the QEEG and then we you know take all that and combine it so that so there's hope that 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 will get funded and if that if, if so then we will have the funds to to do a large study and really go after this once and maybe figure it out once and for all because yeah. i think i think that there's hope that it's going to be at least leading to a treatment uh that's the idea is there's no treatments for this 
disease. It's just, it just basically patients' palliative care is basically all, all we've had. And different patients find different treatments that work. It's, it's a mixed bag. You'll find acyclovir maybe for, for some po- folks, and then other folks, they take it. It doesn't do anything, you know, for example. You know, so... Hi, this is Dr. Mark Zinn with the Neurocognitive Research Institute, and you're listening to the Neuro Noodle Network Podcast. Welcome to Neuro Noodles Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast featuring a neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Jansen's tech whiz, neurofeedback legend, Jake Unkelman, and author of Neurofeedback and the Treatment of Developmental Trauma, Seaburn Fisher. Our goal is to provide information, pro- promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast and I'm more than happy to share their knowledge with you. Hey, my name is Pete and today we have a very special guest, Dr. Mark Zinn, director and co-founder of the Neurocognitive Research Institute. But before we get to Dr. Zinn, we have some Patreon love to dish out. We'd like to thank our Patreon business supporters as well as our show sponsor, Mary Tracy's Neurotraining Strategies offers a higher standard of EEG, QEG education, EEG clinicians, technicians, and neurofeedback practitioners with convenient online BCIA and QEG certified didactic courses. Hey, three things that our listeners and viewers can do to help us spread the word of neurofeedback. Number one, please subscribe to us on YouTube. That little action turns three people from learning about neuroscience and neurofeedback to 3,000. I don't know anything about algorithms. All I know is that little action right there makes the pie even larger. Number two, please give us a review on whatever platform you listen or watch us on. Hey, we'll take five stars on Apple Podcasts, but Seaburn will even accept four and a half. If you have the means, please support us on Patreon slash NeuroNoodle. There are different levels in which you can support, whether you're a mom or dad or a clinician. There's even an option where you can have your own Q&A with Jay Gunkelman. Hey, the support helps us improve the quality of our content. Okay, let's talk with Dr. Markson. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. You're a good Chicago guy, DePaul guy. I'm in Chicago too. I don't know. We, I, I kind of talk funny, people say, or maybe you guys talk funny. Please tell us about your background and how you got the Neurocognitive Institute going. Yeah, we, my wife and I, uh, my late wife and I founded the Neurocognitive Institute in 2015. Uh, and we were interested in using QEEG to study an illness known as uh, it's a long name, myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome. So we just say MECFS. That's the name of the, the, the uh, disease or the disorder that, that, uh, that we were interested in studying. My background is that I was originally wanting to become a concert pianist. And I actually went in to school in music school in piano performance. So I, was, I dealt with a lot of, of issues in, in psychophysiology dealing with performing on a solo piano recital, which is, is considered very demanding because you have to recite basically 186,000 notes in 75 minutes and try to get an error term down to near zero doing that, which is really stressful. <laughs> okay. And you're doing that before an audience. That's also stressful. And then you're dealing with the physiology and that's interrupting the performance. So by do- that process of doing that and also teaching 
uh, as well, because I was also a teacher and I still continue to, to work with students. That process made me become very interested in psychophysiology, which led into neuroscience because we were also interested in the brain and how the brain was changing in accordance with music learning. So we had our Lexicore NeuroSearch 24 system in the early 2000s. That, that, that was one of the first ones to come out. That was our first system, and we used that. We, and we, we used that with our, we had a, a lab school, basically, uh, with our piano students. And we found a, a bunch of interesting findings for that concerning music learning and performance. And we did that for about 10 years. Through the exposure to young children, over time, particularly Marcy was susceptible to getting infections from them. There was transmission of certain pathogens, and a lot of it was viruses, things like that, that kids would bring in. Over time, Marcy developed the condition of, well, she was diagnosed with herpes and encephalitis, but that really turned into MECFS. And what we didn't understand at the time was what, was the, what that meant. Uh, we had never even heard of CFS before. We didn't know what it was about. So we went and it was a serendipitous thing that happened. We met Dr. Montoya, Jose Montoya at Stanford through Marcy had had actually been bitten by her cat. <laughs> so the cat bite led to her meeting with this, <laughs> this doctor, Jose Montoya, who is the, like the head infectious diseases doctor at Stanford Hospital. Uh, they were worried about her hands because she was bitten on the hand. It swelled up like a balloon. And so he got in a conversation with Marcy. Marcy was telling her about her background. And he said, you know, I really, I'm, I'm doing this MECFS initiative. And I need, and, and you do EEG. And I'm really looking for someone like you to head up an EEG project within that. Would you be interested in doing that? And she says, oh, sure. That would be great. I would like to do that. So that's how we got introduced to MECFS. By the way, he did diagnose her later on with MECFS. Um, so that made sense to, to me. So I got a firsthand view of what it's like to have this illness. I think you need that in order to study it. Um, if you don't have a firsthand relative or someone that you live with that has it, I don't think you, you really grasp what's going on because it's, there's really a lot happening with this illness and it's very hard to define. So that may just clarify, you yeah. are talking about chronic fatigue syndrome. That's what people would call it uh, regularly, right? It's the same. It goes by several names. Uh, the CDC named it uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. I think it was back in 1994. Uh, later on, th that name became questioned because it didn't really capture the, the illness. Prior to that, it was called myalgic encephalomyelitis. Patients like that term. It sounded more like that, that that was really what was capturing the, 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 Ill, the essence of the illness. So there was a kind of a compromise that <laughs> became MECFS, which is so much easier to say, of course, than, than the other thing. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know how many syllables that is, but it's, so, and now, and then in 2015, the IOM committee at NIH decided to rename it to uh, Systemic Exertion Intolerance Disease, so SEID. So, but nobody's really adopted that. Now, I, I mean, I don't think so. So we don't really discuss it, but it's really about, it's not really about fatigue. That's the really the, the issue. Uh, it's about exertion and, and post-exertional malaise that happens when you engage in an activity for a brief period of time. There's no, di there's no biomarkers. There's no, the diagnosis is by exclusion. It, they use a case definition to diagnose this. So that means that you get, MECFS is really an umbrella term for a, probably a lot of clinical subtypes going on in that 
in that you can't really get a pure sample of patients when you're when you're studying it. The issue was that um, there was a lot of mixed findings in the literature, which which led to a lot of confusion. There there, there was um, some of the studies didn't have very good sample sizes. Some of the studies, you know, they they just they just weren't able to get the right group, um, or that a lot of them had in this sample, a subsample of those patients that, that did have findings. And they didn't have, the ones that didn't have findings were the ones that, you know, they tended to not have comorbidities. And so that was interesting, the, you know, uh, like, for instance, depression, because a lot of people think this might be depression. Depression has a lot of overlap, you know, and, and more and more, we're developing new technologies to study this illness, but we haven't really figured out a great way to do this yet. And there's not, we haven't figured out a great way to study two things, cognitive impairment or brain fog, and then post-exertional malaise, right? Those are two separate things. They, they, go, they go together. What I did was I, and Marcy and I did, was we, from our EEG study at Stanford, we got some really interesting findings using QEEG and Loretta. What we were able to do was show that there was abnormalities going on in a, in a really large patient sample because they had a very large patient sample. It was a case control study, so we were able to compare cases with controls, and we were able to use QEG Loretta to do that, and we found some really interesting findings that explained um, what their, what was going on with their fatigue. And with that, we decided to, that's what led to founding this institute. That's really what led us to do it. We thought, okay, we've got something here, a modality that can actually, it has the capability of picking up on the subtle changes that are occurring in the brain, because that's really what's happening here. The patients are are not being uh, with MRI, which has its own limitations, as we know. Uh, it's not able to pick up on the subtle changes that are taking place. QEEG, however, it has this high time resolution, right? It has the ability to to re to look at the activity of the brain on the millisecond time scale, <laughs> which is terrific, as mm -hmm. opposed to seconds or longer with the hemodynamic responses, which, by the way, are not uniformly distributed across the brain. So we don't know for sure. The assumption was that certain areas of the brain were, you know, getting the same amount of blood flow, but it turns out that that's not necessarily the case. So there's a lot of issues with fMRI that prevented, and, and for this particular illness, it really made it difficult to really get any findings. And in, in the neuropsych test, by the way, um, they did neuropsych testing on people, and they didn't really score that much differently from healthy controls. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, patients, the patients were able to, either the test didn't capture the, what was going on, because they're just not sensitive enough, once again, there was, there was, they were able to rise to the occasion and do it. I mean, most of these patients are, are actually uh, very functional in some ways, even though they have the illness, they're actually able to perform okay. But the, the problem is that, that those symptoms change at any given moment and drastically, right? And so they, they can become very intense, very severe, and rapidly fluctuating. And they, they can't manage the illness because of that. So that's really what's going on with the neuropsych tests. They weren't able to really identify things all that well. fMRI didn't have the capacity. So EEG, as it turns out, might be one of the great tools for this particular illness. It's just suitable for this. It's ideal for this type of problem, to solve this type of problem. So that's why we found the NCRI to really go after this. And, and we've uh, we moved to from California to Chicago. Um, I wanted to, you know, go to school here at DePaul University, and that's where I got my PhD. And I, you know, worked with Dr. Lennon Jason um, at the Center for Community Research, and we did some studies, and we were able to get some more interesting findings. That's what I'd like to share with you today at some point, is, is to go over some of the findings we got. You can see what I'm talking about and how 
this relates to Loretta, because Loretta is really a very powerful tool that is telling you that not, not only that there's an abnormality, but where the abnormality in the brain or the dysfunction, the dysregulation in the brain is occurring. And so I think it's really important that this, this modality and probably used with other modalities as well, there will eventually be a, a way to identify patients that you don't have to just rely on case, case definitions. You're going to be able to, to d- differentiate patients. You're going to be able to see clinical subtypes. It's just a matter of getting enough patients in there in, in the sample and getting a large enough sample and having the funding to do it. What does the, the, the great DSM-5 say about this condition? Is it something you can look in there and find it? The DSM-5, well, this would be a cognitive impairment due to a medical condition, you know, falling under that category. So it's not a psychiatric disorder, although there might be psychiatric comorbidity, which is understandable. If, if any one of us got a neurological illness, I imagine we'd be a little depressed about that. Dr. Zen, you have something to share with us, I believe. What, what do you have? I'm just going to start out with uh, the Stanford study, because that's really what prompted us to, to really go at this. And, and it's just, these findings are really remarkable, I think. So I, I'm just going to let me just share the screen. This is a study we, we, that we did at Stanford. That this was the project that, that with the original project, this was the result of that, this manuscript here. It was published in Biological Psychology. So the interesting thing about the brain in, in this disease is it seems like that it's, it's underperforming or hypoactive. And, and, there's, and that fits with other findings as well. It just seems that the brain is, doesn't have the same amount of energy in it that the allocation of the energy is not occurring in the same way, or there's just something that is not able to restore itself. What we did, we, we did this study, this was involving 50 patients with CFS, um, ME-CFS, and 50 patients with, um, that were healthy. Um, they weren't patients, they were healthy individuals, just doing a case control comparison. And what we found was when we looked at the Loretta, we, we found a really interesting pattern in the delta band. And this is what it is. So this is a huge cluster. It's like 50% of the frontal lobe and 30% of the limbic lobe. Uh, just looking all the yellow here in the frontal lobe uh, of the brain. See, uh, so in the prefrontal cortex, especially where, you know, they're, they're having a lot of disexecutive problems going on. They're having problems with attention. They're having problems with decision-making. These are all the things that, and, and setting goals, that they're having the, all these tr- problems that do, that do align with problems that are occurring in the follow. But this is a cluster analysis and that's why it's all yellow like that. But this is, the, what this is to capture the, you know, the size or the extent, the pathology that's going on in this sample. And this is in the Delta band, which is very interesting because that Delta band uh, well, for, first of all, delta, you know, excess delta is reported in, you know, just the EEG, conventional EEG literature. Um, it's, it's been reported in long COVID uh, or COVID-19 patients that are hospitalized. And it's been reported in, if you look at, uh, you know, chapters like the Niedermeyer and other EEG physiology books, you, you see there's a lot of inf- inflammatory conditions do present with intermittent delta activity, uh, frontal intermittent delta activity, things like that. So, so a lot of slow wave type changes going on in the brain. The problem is, is that in this disease, these changes are not visible to the naked eye. So you could look at the, the, the waveform 
uh, a neurologist can look at the waveform and and say uh, it's fine. And they'll give the report, they'll write the report, unremarkable, there's not, nothing going on, basically. And the patients are disappointed because they feel like, well, gee, I'm having all these symptoms. Yeah. Well, how could this does how could this mismatch occur? And it's just because they're not using computers to quantify the changes that are taking place. It's to say that, well, if it's not visible, then it's not there. It's kind of like saying, well, I can look at the sky and I can't see the planets. So they're not there. I mean, it's, it's, you, you gotta have, you gotta use some, some more equipment to get, to, to get at that. Right. I mean, that's why we have the, you know, the space telescopes we have, <laughs> you know, there's more in there. You got to dig for it. And it's, uh, and that's really what, a point I want to make is that subtle changes occurring in the brain can have bigger, big ramifications. It can have big, big potential for um, a lot of uh, symptoms because these symptoms appear to be all brain-based that they're, they're having. The, the symptoms are, are really um, prominent, which I'm going to go into. So, th so th this is interesting. Um, we, also, we also found, oh, this is the most robust finding. And again, this is, this is just showing you the depth, right? So if you look at the depth, here, it starts out in the rectal gyrus and, it, and, and in areas of the limbic system, uh, and then it just gets higher and higher, and you can see how, you know, there's the overall frontal cortex, the ventral prefrontal cortex, and the, you know, medial regions of the cortex, which are interesting, and the anterior cingulate, uh, and other, other areas as well. Now, we also found, you know, some other things like increase, decreased beta activity, you know, in a, you know, in the, it's called the parietal lob, lobule, but, you know, basically uh, in, in the uh, sensory motor cortex, which is interesting because the patients are really having trouble with movement. Uh, they, they're, they're much slower. Uh, they can't, they have muscle weakness. Uh, you know, so this to me suggested, you know, a, a diminished cortical drive uh, for being able to be, to be able to execute motor movements, to be able to, to do their daily activities. Uh, it sort of it aligns with that, also aligns with uh, sensory perceptual issues. Uh, that they're having a lot of them are having uh, problems with sensations that are going on uh paresthesias things like that so that that was really interesting and those were the results of the stanford study we also found a a cluster that was related to fatigue this was in brokaw's area which was i thought was interesting um so this was a focal uh region here which uh was identified with we're using exact loretta e loretta which found this focal Again, this is in delta band, uh, this focal region that, that on the left hemisphere, uh, which happened to be right around, you know, the language centers. And so, you know, a, a lot of them do, um, when you listen to them talk, that their, their speech is a little bit slurred and they, they do have issues with word finding uh, and other language-based issues. So I thought that was really interesting as well. And that was related to, uh, we had a clinical measure of fatigue uh, going on. So when... When you're um, talking to one of these patients, uh, listen real carefully to their words uh, because they're having trouble coming up with words that they're, they're trying to formulate. They, they, they will stumble um, and they will say things incorrectly sometimes. Um, and they will also sound a little bit like they've had um, one too many cocktails or something like that. Um, so it, that's, that's really interesting, this aphasia type occurrence that and that's something that hasn't really been looked at. We haven't really looked at aphasia in this illness at all. Uh, and to my knowledge, there's not really any studies that really look at this. So uh, inter interestingly, the insight that you gain from this modality and, and then the directions you can take from it, what, 
what this this study led to um, other studies where I was wanting to look at the brain networks uh, because this is not networks, right? So we also used Loretta, and this was published in the you know Applied Psychophysiology and Biofeedback Journal, and we were looking for the connectivity in the brain and how the regions were connected, and we looked at several like major networks: default mode, salience, and executive functioning. Uh, there's actually the executive network. We looked at those three networks because they, they sort of function synergistically together. And, and there's a lot of other networks going on too, but we just had to keep it limited to those three for this particular study. It was a small study. It was a pilot study. It wasn't as big as the other one. So that was the other thing. But we, what we found was this a similar problem in connectivity. Now the blue lines are about to see. So this is, this is the, um, the executive network, for example. So the, the edges in the network of the nodes that, that are, you know, in comprised of this network are, um, they're blue indicating that they're hypoconnected or they're disconnected. They're not, there's not as, you know, when it looks at the synchronization between those two regions in, in all those vertices you see, the entire network is brought down basically in this disease. Now, this is something you might see in a in a disease like Alzheimer's, and it's not, I'm not saying this is Alzheimer's, but you might see something like this as the regions of the brain become degenerated and uh, they actually, the tissue starts to become, uh, you know, dysfunctional or dying off. The cells actually start dying. You're going to have, obviously, those networks are going to get broken apart, that there's not going to be the same connectivity occurring. And you're going to get, you're going to see this sort of pattern. And, you know, and this is the, uh, this was the, another network uh, that was the, actually, that's the same network. But see, this is the uh, salience network. So looking at the salience network and the salience network is, you know, there's a really important network that is, it directs our attention to salient events that are occurring in our environment. Uh, you know, and it, it has a lot to do with, you know, directing either internal or outward. So it, it it can it can basically help help us switch between our direction, our attention toward ourselves or toward the external environment, and that's the salience network at work. So it, and it has a lot to do with um, homeostasis and maintaining homeostasis and things like that. And then you know the, there then there's here's the default mode network, and in in the posterior regions of the default mode network, we found this connectivity same issue. So all three networks had. Again, this is a smaller patient sample. I wish we had 50 people, but we didn't. Um, but in this sample, uh, patients compared to controls, we found this hypoconnectivity mm -hmm. um, going on. So the, the hypo pattern sort of occurs here again, but in a different type of analysis, basically. Mm -hmm. um, then, and then what I did was I, I looked at um, network efficiency. I decided to just, let's, let's just see what it looks like with the whole brain, right? We just do a whole brain connectome analysis and let's see what, what comes up, you know, when, in terms of the network. So we looked at the networks. We used a process called graph theory to, to examine something called small worldness to examine how, you know, how are these networks, how efficiently are these networks performing, right? Um, and so what this line shows is um, the healthy controls, um, their, their networks are more efficient. This is closer to one, see? Um, as it gets down here, uh, you can see this is significantly different. For CFS, for MECFS, um, their networks are less efficient. That's what this shows. Uh, mm -hmm. this and this is in Delta once again. I looked at Delta and Alpha and Voltos. 
In alpha, it was it was still that same trend, but not as prominent. It wasn't as pronounced. The most robust finding was delta once again. It also we were able to uh, take a score of a composite score of subject. Now this is a subjective measure, unfortunately, of their own ratings of cognitive, but their ratings of their cognitive impairment. If you take you know they, they rated their cognitive impairment, the composite score um, on those different impairments that were that were actually aggregated together. Um, so you see this slope of the line going down. So as the score got higher, uh, the, the, as the score uh, increased, I should say, the composite score, then the, the, their small wilderness score went down. It, you know, it's just interesting, interesting to see that. Uh, and then um, in 2021, so in, in 2021, I decided, okay, um, Let's look at, let's, let, I shifted gears and decided, well, okay, so we were able to identify signs of cognitive impairment. We're able to actually quantify that. So maybe we should also look at PEM. And this has been a huge stumbling block in the field um, because nobody's really kind of figured out a way to really address this um, currently. Wait, say, say what, what are you addressing? So it's called post-exertional malaise. And what this is, it's, <laughs> this is like the hallmark feature of the illness. Uh, um, this is what makes everybody wonder what's going on. Um, so you could have somebody that seems perfectly normal. Uh, they say, I mean, they're, they're functioning. I mean, and then suddenly they crash. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and for what, no real apparent reason, uh, but they just have to stop what they're doing. Um, so, yes. for my, so for my wife, it could be like, we were just kind of walking through this store, a grocery store, suddenly she would crash and have to go, go uh, sit down. And then have to go um, into the car. I had to finish the shopping trip and check out myself. It was just, it was almost, it, it, it was just really unpredictable uh, what would occur. And, and so, okay, so how can we use QEEG to measure this? This is a, a reactivity of the brain that's occurring. It's not like, okay, we're going to just measure two, two groups and see what the brain is going to be like at baseline. We want to see what's happening when they engage in some type of physical activity. Um, now, traditionally, how this is done is using some type of submaximal test or maximal um, test where they look at peak oxygen consumption, and they have these cardiovascular tests where they run a treadmill or they sit on a bicycle, and they do they perform these tests. And these tests, uh, what 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 bothers me about them is that a lot of patients can't do those tests; they're too extreme. Um, you know, they, if they try to do those tests, they they would collapse. Um, mm -hmm. So, if these patients and they, they admit that, that, you know, this, the problem here is that they're only getting the mild patients in these studies. They're not getting the severe ones. So their findings are very, um, even if they do the two-day test, there, there's not a lot of differences between patients. Um, mm -hmm. and this, uh, they, they're onto something, but it's still not quite, <laughs> they haven't figured out a way to do this. So I thought, okay, well, there's other studies that, you know, go at it a different way, which they just use um, something called a grip force protocol, where they just use a hand grip, some type of hand grip protocol. Um, you know, in studies in mitochondrial disease and things like that, they'll use a hand, hand grip protocol that's, that's much more uh, accessible for patients. It's also easier for me to, to administer, um, and I don't need a doctor standing there in case the patient collapses or something like that. I measured their brain activity um, with the QEG. We did a QEG before they did the protocol, it was submaximal grip force protocol um, where they had to squeeze this hand grip um, and relax, squeeze, relax, squeeze, relax like that. Um, 
and it was already calibrated ahead of time. So we would knew their maximum voluntary contraction and all that. So we were able to sort of get get at you know what is tense for them. A lot of them reported at moderate levels of exertion um, doing this this doing this task. Um, but anyway, so they did the test for a few minutes. Afterward, we measured the brain activity again, and what we saw was this drop in the current density. Uh, the current density, in other words, the neurons were just not performing uh, at the same, you know, strength, basically. Uh, so, so we saw this drop in activity that had taken place. And uh, mm -hmm. the interesting thing was, and the interesting thing about post-exertional malaise, if you sit, let's just take a look at this. At baseline, at baseline, there's already some differences occurring in some of these bands. Uh, we didn't see differences in delta this time around. Uh, but at baseline, we saw, you know, the, 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 the cases, uh, the, the red line is the cases uh, of the WCFS, and then the blue line is health and controls. And so what, what we found was that, you know, they already had more uh, current density, you know, in their uh, brain activity at baseline. Um, that, so there was, a, there was a significant differences in alpha and beta. But after the grip, you see what, what happened was, it, just looking here, so there was a shift that occurred, and and suddenly uh, there was differences in theta, and and all, you know the only band that wasn't really different was delta, but you know just just measuring like right after doing this exercise, you can see that uh, there was a little bit further drop actually, and the cases went up. Uh, controls, I'm sorry, the controls went up, the cases went down. But what we did was because the feature, the feature that's really interesting about this is that it gets worse over a 24 hour period. Um, it, and it's probably more than that, but the 24 hours is the one that everybody refers to, you know, so they'll, they'll have this crash that lasts anywhere from, you know, 24 hours to 48 hours or longer after exerting themselves. So we, we brought them in the very next day. And what we found was, um, see, an even greater see uh, differences between the, the two groups. So um, what I, I, I wasn't anticipating for the healthy controls to go up. Um, I thought they, they would just return to baseline, mm -hmm. but they actually went up and the, and the controls and the cases, uh, but they got worse. <laughs> okay. So these, all the bands, the entire, you know, you know frequency spectrum changed. And again, this, this goes to the, so now it's not just about hypofunction, but it's about hypofunction in response to exercise. And so they're already starting at kind of a, a baseline that's that's not great. And then they get worse yeah. after doing this activity. So this to me really helps operationalize PEM. Now that maybe this needs this needs some tweaking and it needs, you know, the it could be more pronounced, but this was significant in this analysis and patients didn't have to suffer <laughs> doing it. And so this, this simple protocol um, is, is a way of, I think of one way of, of trying to get at this, this, um, this problem, this, it was just huge, you know, and then I did for my dissertation, I also, I had a larger, this was a smaller sample again. Um, uh, we, we don't, we didn't have funding for this. So we just did what we could. Uh, and, and then over time I collected a large sample, a larger sample of about 30, um, I had 34 patients compared to 34 controls. And, and I looked something, I, I looked at regions of the brain that are responsible for autonomic function. So there's, when we think about the ANS and how it's the peripheral ANS is what we kind of refer to when we think about the ANS and hand temperature and skin conductance and all that. 
But, um, and then the hypothalamus, of course, has a lot to do with that. But there's also centers in the brain that orchestrate all that. And that's really, so if you've got problems going on in the brain um, with, let's say, um, there's hyperintensities going on, um, you know, in the white matter or something to that effect, or there's atrophy ha happening um, in the brain, and, and depending on what, what regions are affected, it's also going to affect the autonomic system. So that's why you see a lot of people running around with, um, they'll say, well, I, I can't stand for <laughs> more than a minute. My posture um, POTS is called, uh, posture orthostatic intolerance, um, but they're, they're uh, and tachycardia syndrome. So they're, they're not able to, to do a lot of things that they used to do autonomically. They're having heart palpitations, they're having tachycardia, they're having um, other problems with the autonomic system that's dysfunctional, that's dysregulated. Now, with the, the, one of the drawbacks with the Loretta is you can only look at cortical activity. In terms of the brain, it can only look at the, the mm -hmm. cortex. It can't look at the subcortical regions unless you use something like uh, SW Loretta, which I, I didn't have at the time. Um, so if you just look, but it, it, that's okay, because if you just look at the cortical regions of the brain that are responsible for keeping this, this autonomic system basically in check, right? And, mm -hmm. and basically adapting according to task demands, right? Okay. Because that's really what has to occur. Mm -hmm. the adaptations like, okay, now we're doing a hand grip. The body has to be able to respond to that and say, okay, anticipating, well, okay, I'm not, what if it happens again? Okay, I'm going to actually ramp up the activity in the brain. Um, and not only that, but I'm going to keep it ramped up further the next day, just in case, right. you know. So the brain is uh, on an anticipatory tra trajectory. <laughs> that's really mm -hmm. what's going on. And and so I studied these cortical regions. And so, you know, I found some differences in the brain. And this is this was really getting down to more complexities here. But when you look at this, you can see um, the blue regions are the areas of the brain um, that now this is you can look at the networks on a local level, a local clustering or uh, the um, or you can look at it on a more integrated level, a global level. So it's local connectivity and global. So if you look at local connectivity, um, there's a kind of a mixture of things going on, but but you can see that there's the, you know, in these particular regions like the cingulate and um, there's some regions in the prefrontal cortex, um, in the, I'm sorry, pre precentral drivers uh, where, you know, preparatory motor actions taking place that in those nodes of the brain, the, the size of the node is relating to the size of the, the amount of the loss in that in terms of that functioning of that network so there's so there's basically the network is a system right that's what this is setting and there's no edges here i didn't put in edges because it was just maybe too it makes it look too complicated i'm just looking at nodes in this but it's connectivity this is connectivity so when you start looking at systems a, a new picture emerges that's basically what and then you start seeing a very interesting findings in the posterior insula which is you know a lot of um things are mapped to the posterior insula in terms of like your um body sensations appropriate um interoception body uh, of all your body organs right especially in the gut and places like that um so there's there was like this this whole posterior region which is basically less um efficient 
going on there, <laughs> lots of reduced efficiency going on. Mm -hmm. And um, there, yeah, so there was some compensation as well. That's what the red is showing. So the compensatory activity, that's the way I interpret it anyway, going on in some of these other regions. I'm more interested, I'm kind of more interested in this blue part. Uh, and then you can see here, now this is the insula on the left. So on the, on the insula on the left, when you start, when you look at this, this is, again, just baseline differences. This is not hand grip anymore, just baseline differences between patients and controls. Um, you just see that, you know, already in the insula, there's dysregulation going on, in the, um, and that's going to affect the, the brain on a, global, on a global level because that's the type of analysis that we're talking about for, for this particular figure. So, so there's global and local connectivity. That means the networks are performing less efficiently, which is what's really leading, I think, to problems with information processing speed. Um, these, these patients are, are demonstrated repeatedly to perform slower on tests of reaction time, neuropsych tests that, that involve some type of um, times element. So, um, and so that's really what I, that's really all I have for, for you today um, as far as findings. We're really interested in um, doing more with, there's, there's SW Loretta uh, now that, that is capable of looking at the subcortical structures in the brain, which is so mm -hmm. important for some of these findings. And actually, I'm going to be doing this with long COVID as well. Uh, and, and I have some patients that are interested and so we're going to do like another study and maybe look at this using an even more advanced uh, method of, of looking at the brain in 3D uh, with, with quantitative EEG. And what that yields even more uh, interesting results, um, because then we're going to be able to look at the, yeah, and we can even look at the cerebellum with SWRVATA. We can see what's going on there. We can look at um, the thalamus, which we couldn't look at before. Um, and, and some portions of the basal ganglia. So th these are very important structures that are that like more than likely involved in, in this disease. And, um, and so we're very interested in, in, in looking at that as well. Um, so that's what's coming next is just that, that new analysis with this you know, the latest <laughs> developments to come out with this, this particular method, Loretta. Um, so using that, it's also got more voxels. You can look at, you know, it's so it's more, it's higher resolution. It's got all, all, the, all the good stuff that you would want for an advancement, um, basically. So I'm really happy to, to have the opportunity to do that, look at that and look at the connectivity in the brain because that's really, um, that's really I think we're, we're, we're going to find some, some really interesting uh, understanding. It's, it's really about, it's not just about like brain activity going up or going down. It's, it's about how the, the network is being reorganized as a result of having the illness. So it's about reorganization being, you know, being changed the, as a result of the exposure to, to the cause of whatever this is. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, so Dr. Zinn, Dr. tell me if you're a corporate executive, this is affecting you, the post-exertion malaise. Is that like burnt out? Like you're doing a presentation and you're just like, I can't do this anymore. Because um, we have executives that listen to the show. I work with executives and they could be uh, suffering from this, but they don't know that they have it. What, what, are, what are they feeling? What, what, 
all everything that we just showed, what would they be feeling to say, yeah, that's me? The, yeah, the corporate executives, if they had to, for, first of all, when, when I refer to the corporate executives, they had to stop being corporate executives <laughs> because they had this illness. Um, if they had a really kind of a mild version of it, I guess they could sort of work, continue their work, uh, but it would be on a more limited basis. And, it, and they would have obviously cognitive impairment, brain fog, forgetfulness, you know, uh, attention problems, concentration problems. You'd have problems um, making decisions, which is horrible if you're a corporate executive, a CEO of a corporation, you can't make decisions. So you would have that. Um, and then you would have post-exertional malaise. That, that's a must. If you don't have post-exertional malaise, you probably don't have this illness. Um, you might have something else going on. Um, so, you know, that means that just, you know, just doing some mild exertion throughout your day would, would trigger a potential crash to where you have to go lay down and recover. And that recovery period could last for 24 hours. So that's really the issue. Um, and so a lot of patients, what they do is they figure out ways to avoid that from happening. That's really what they have to do. They have to keep in order to recover, basically, they have to not push themselves. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, here's the, and, and, you know, and to get where they're at, they had to do the very same thing, right? They had to push themselves like crazy to become the high-level achieving position that they've gotten into. They've had to, you know, do all the, all the hard effort, work, effort. And so that's, that's, you know, the idea that they're just not trying hard enough or that they're just, <laughs> you know, it's, but but they can come in they they can come in and get a 19 channel scan and and show the markers just like you presented it says there's a reason for this ideally yeah you would be able to do it at the surface right at the brain surface and not maybe have to use loretta um but but i'm i'm more interested i guess in knowing what what the regions are down so i i use the loretta to reveal that so um but yeah i mean ideally uh, you you just do the 19 channels and just measure it on the surface and say, oh, yeah, all 19 channels have dropped <laughs> as a result of doing an grip. Uh, yeah, you probably have this post-exertion, which means you probably have ACFS <laughs> in so, combination, of course, with other things. <laughs> one, of the things that, one of the things that I think is, is uh, on a slow burn in the, in the background of thinking about long COVID, but also looking at trauma and the aftermath of developmental trauma, trauma early in childhood. Is you know if if we if we my hunch is if we took histories of the vulnerability to people of autoimmune disorder we we know that from the ACE study that the ACE study suggests that if you have a number of of ACEs right um, adverse childhood events uh, experiences you will have a greater liability to autoimmune disorder I mean by by twenty percent in women ten percent in women. Okay, a greater risk. And so if we were looking at long COVID and we're not asking the question about early childhood trauma, and this way I want to implore you as you're doing your work to also look at the factor of setting up a system from childhood for immune collapse of some sort. And whether that's what you're looking at when you're, when you're uh, looking at the Loretta scan. The other thing is uh, that is interesting to me is that I have begun to do a little bit of work with 32 channel and uh, 32 channel cue, um, and you get um, much more refined data with 32 channel. So, um, and I have I have people I could introduce you to, you know, if you wanted to oh, okay. look at look at other 
other ways of looking at the brain. It might give you more data. Um, uh, the one other thing that I want to say is that at some point you said something about these, these the connectivity being um, impaired and their cell death was, was in, in your description, right? You said something about cell death. Right, or, or something going on with the white matter where it's changed somehow, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I just want to say that that could be very scary to people and whether it's cell death or cell fatigue of its own sort, we don't know, right? We don't know really whether, you know, like with stroke, there are, there's, there's cell death, but there's cell stunning that goes on that is a much larger picture in the brain and creates the creates its own habit, but those are not dead cells. And I just, people, as soon as you hear cell death, people in the brain, people are going to get really scared of what's going on here. And unless that's something that I'm not aware of, which is many things I'm not aware of. So this could be part of it. I just want to make sure that that's, um, that's something that they need to be worried about if they do. That is rather than cell death, it's cell inactivity. And can we, with training, because this is what the hope is, right? With being able to, to get the brain to train itself into new patterns of activity, which is what we're doing with neurofeedback all the time, we could have an impact on these profound conditions. And we should be able to have an impact on them. Yeah, I think you're making a lot of really good points there. Um, and I think it's going to be neurofeedback in a combination of maybe something like PBM, there's all these, these notes you have to hit like you did on the piano. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think you're right. And um, the, we got to figure out if it's, if it, it, it does look like this is a, for whatever reason, um, this is an immune response occurring um, and an inflammatory reaction occurring, whether the virus is still present in some type of really uh, very, very minute form. <laughs> Uh, whether it's, you know, integrated into some, I mean, some cells actually integrate themselves into the, into the, you know, the chromosome and, or, you know, I mean, there was one study that found that, you know, herpes virus can actually invade the, the neurons themselves and then they can lie dormant and then reactivate during stress. They, they just don't really understand the mechanisms are really poor, poorly understood, but to the extent to which you could train the brain to become more stable to, and, and train that metastability because that's really what's going on or trying to modify your activity levels and pace yourself. Also getting feedback from that. So if maybe the, the, the neurofeedback, could, you could say, okay, what you're doing is working because the neurofeedback is showing that you have less dysregulation occurring and in, in this network. So keep it up. You know, uh, that's, I think that's, that's a really good, you know, treatment monitoring type type approach. Well, it's a treatment, also, treatment yeah, too. Yeah, and right. actual treatment too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there should be a, hopefully a way to, to treat the brain. I, I'm interested in, in that approach as well as, you know, any other types of approaches that will uh, also enhance that, that as well. Me too. Um, Me too. Yeah. So I think it's going to be a combination of approaches that we'll have to go after this. And certainly neurofeedback will play a major role. I think it will. But, you know, I just, I also, since you're going to probably be one of the lead researchers in, in some of the most important areas here, right, in the, in the physical medicine, we think of it as physical medicine. 
I would hope that you will get into your assessment uh, this issue of early childhood trauma. So you can see if that ACEs problem is showing up for chronic fatigue, which on my hunch it is, uh, and in long COVID, right? Yeah. As, as, I, as a part I think of that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Adverse child experiences, uh, trauma, and setting up the conditions for the immune response yes. um, would be uh, certainly, I think that, that these are the other factors that have to be addressed in this illness and uh, what makes it so difficult to, to define because that, you know, there, there are, I think the stress response is and the physiology involved in that is also at work here. Um, and the autonomic nervous system and the, and the networks that I talked about um, will also, you know, those nodes are controlling the sympathetic responses and the mm -hmm. parasympathetic responses. So the, these responses are not able to occur in, normally in these folks, um, or they don't appear to be because of the, the, they're, they're dysregulated of that, the particular network is dysregulated along with everything else. The so, other thing that we see it usually typically in traumatized people that I'm training, right? So this is on a EEG, on a spectral on the EEG, not, not with Loretta, right? Not, not, this is not a brain map finding. This is just a everyday finding. You find excess slow wave everywhere. So what looks like hypoactivity in the brain, right? Because that's what, that's what excess slow wave should be, isn't felt as hypoactivity at all. It isn't felt like that, the physical crash, but it is felt like you, 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 you can't, you can't get through your day, right? But it isn't necessarily that, at least in sort of clinical daily practice, we see excess slow wave as almost a biomarker. It's not quite, we can't quite make that claim, but there's excess theta, excess delta, um, sometimes excess alpha, although usually there's low alpha uh, in, in these patients. It is always someplace in, it's about the realm of terror. It seems to be an early shutdown mechanism in the, you know, in, in childhood, early childhood trauma. This is a, a phenomenon of shutdown. Um, so the, the hypoactivity is right, but it isn't felt in that population, in my population, because it's not felt as, it's felt as sheer terror. And even dissociative events we'll find within the realm of the, the slow wave activity. So the overlap is really fascinating. It doesn't mean, mean to complicate your research. I don't want to do that. Just have to be as straightforward as possible. But just for you to know that, you know, on the ground, there are these, these we're seeing this. That's really interesting. And, and these are for patients that have adverse child experiences. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. These are developmental trauma patients. Developmental trauma patients. Uh, yeah, yeah with, with really pretty severe histories. And their affect is fear, 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 shame, rage. You know, all these high activated affects. These are the problem patients. These are the patients that people turn away from. Right, yeah. but they're, they're also the people who get autoimmune diseases and uh, and all other kinds of things. So they're just not so separate. But just for you to know, the marker is at, at least in the in the office. What you're asking people to do is diminish their slow wave activity. 
That's really, yeah, that's fascinating. And so that's why I'm really interested in the reactions of the brain. Um, if you, you know, if you did a hand grip on those folks, uh, I imagine, you know, their activity would, would not go in the same direction as MCFS, um, yeah. or it would not be in the same brain regions, um, you know, and there would be a different pattern. So I'm, I'm confident that we can sort of, it, it, again, we're, we're just sort of figuring out how to study the brain. Uh, I, and it turns out that I think just, just uh, measurement at baseline is good, but, but you also have to see, okay, well, how does, it, how does the brain respond to challenges, whether cognitive or physical? When you give it, you know, and then that's going to provide, I think, more information. And I think everybody's, you know, individual differences. So the brain is going to react differently to, in some <laughs> folks, and, and then according to the level of trauma that they've had, the level of trauma exposure, uh, and, and the amount of uh, trauma work that they've done with, with their therapists. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. So how much they recovered from that and, uh, and all that, and then and whatever else they're experiencing. And then also uh, identifying like what are the characteristics that are that are being affected? You know, are are these adverse childhood experiences? Are they? Uh, maybe they are experiencing a level of fatigue. Uh, it's you know that's a little higher than than usual or something like that. I'm not. I'm not sure. This is one of the things that I that I, I want want to be in this conversation is that I'm not sure that grip strength wouldn't show up. We've just never done it. Uh, right. Yeah, we've never done it. So, so you, you know. Why, right? Why? Yeah, right. So, so, um, but it's it's this characteristic and how of I mean, this history shows up in later. We know it by data. So, does it? Is this a factor in long COVID? Is this a factor in chronic fatigue? Where is this a factor? And as soon as it's autoimmune, to me. We have to be looking at at least a paragraph on whether these people met, uh, had, what their ACE scores were, essentially, you know, and that would be a great benefit to the, to understanding how people get sick, right? So in order for Dr. Mark Zinn to get that, he, uh, he needs donations, right? Because <laughs> you don't, you, I you only say it. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> but but uh, I mean, hey, we're we're already in overtime. So uh, how how do you accept funding? Because you only take private donations, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I it, it I have been working with some collaborators to try to get grant funding through NIH. Unfortunately, NIH is very much geared toward fMRI and the other modalities, so it's rather difficult to convince them to do a study using EEG. So what we did was we said, okay, fine, we'll use EEG and we'll use all these other modalities. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and give them that. Well, then they start picking apart uh, the methods and <laughs> the study itself. Yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, and you just feel like pulling out your hair after, you know, waiting six months. <laughs> just, oh, we got okay, to well, bring you back. We're all in the same boat. We just need more paddlers. <laughs> Dr. Mark Sin, what's, what's the best way for uh, people that never heard of you to learn more about you? Yeah, so I do have the website. It's um, www.thencri.org, since it's a nonprofit organization, 501c3, uh, that actually Marcy set up. Um, and, and so I'm just continuing that work that she, she was really wanting to do. Um, and we were both wanting to do, but she had 
the idea to do it. I mean, it was her, her, her goal or her wish that, that we do something with this. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and is it possible for the listeners and viewers, those great PDFs that you were going through, can, can we share that with our, our audience or some clips of them? The, 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 uh, so the PDFs of the studies I was showing you, absolutely. I mean, those are, those we can yeah, share. Cause I'll put out now I'll edit this out. We'll put that in the podcast notes. We'll put your con contact information in there and we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up. Uh, yeah. I'd be happy to, to send you the PDFs of the, of the publications. Yeah. Um, you know, that would we got to get the word out there, Dr. Dr. Zinn. Yeah. All right, let me let, let me wrap it up. We got to bring you back. Plus, you're in Chicago, man. Yeah, yeah. We got to go see the Cubs. I agree. I think there's. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I don't even go see the Cubs, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I guess I'm too busy measuring patients. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Doctor Markson, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And then we'd like to thank you all for listening to the Neuro Noodle Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast. We'd like to thank our Patreon business supporters because. We need funding, doctor. You know how it goes. Mary uh -huh. Tracy's Neuro Training Strategies offers a higher standard of EEG, QEG education, EEG clinicians, technicians, and neurofeedback practitioners with convenient online BCIA and QEEG uh, certified didactic courses. Register now at eegstrategies.com. Please, let's help get Dr. Zen's word out there. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, that little click and like is the difference between three people learning about this or 3,000? It's up to you. Pay it forward. Hey, do you have an idea for a topic or guest? Please email me, Pete, at neuronoodle.com. We'll leave us a voicemail with the link in the podcast notes. Number two, could you please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts? And Seaburn will accept four and a half stars. And hey, if you really, really <laughs> like us, you can always buy us a coffee on Patreon slash neuronoodle. Jay, he's at, he, Jay Gunkelman's out there dealing with Spain right now. But if oh. he, he were here, you can get a lot of coverage for very little dollars on this show. Cue the yeah. music. <laughs>